to this week's edition of the Aquila Reporting Weekly Review. I am your uh, host, uh, Paul Harrell. Uh, once again, for the second week in a row, if you missed last week's, uh, you're not hearing the familiar voice of Dr. Dominic Aquila because he is overseas in the Middle East. He is in uh, Egypt. I'm joined by uh, teaching elder Ryan Beasy. Uh, he is back with us uh, for the second week in a row as a co-host here on the Equal Report. Ryan, thank you so much for doing this once again, sir. Oh, my pleasure and privilege. Thank you, Paul. Absolutely. Um, you know, Dominic goes overseas and uh, he's in the Middle East, and now there's this huge conflict. We know the two are not related, uh, and obviously do the we situation. Know? Oh, yeah. do, do, we we, do we know? Right. <laughs> I'm sure he'll deny it. Uh, we do need to continue to pray for him that he will, be, you know, get back to the state safely. Uh, also, uh, you know, pray for the violence and the bloodshed and for it to end mm. uh, in the Middle East is absolutely terrible. What's what's going on? Um, but uh, Mr. Ryan Beasy, you've been doing good. You've had a good uh, seven days since the last time we spoke. Yes, indeed, I have. Thank you. How about you? I've, I've been doing well, doing very, very well. Um, we have a top 10 list. That's what this uh, podcast is about. You guys know the drill. We have the top 10 most clicked on articles from last week. Uh, we have them. We're going to reveal them now. We got Ryan Beasy, who's going to go over the first uh, five, 10 through six. And then I'll read the last five headlines. All right. Well, number 10, the definition of Puritanism by Joel Beakey. Number nine, when genuine obedience becomes impossible, hell becomes impossible as well by Kevin DeYoung. And then number eight, the Great Schism of 1054 by Stephen Nichols. Number seven, but Johnny can't spell gay by Heather McDonald. And number six, Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline by Mark Hemingway. No doubt about that. Uh, number five, we have uh, John Swiker Shelton uh, writing The Secular Son of Progressive Christianity. Uh, number four, coming at number four, Not Augustinian Enough. This uh, is a book review written by James Wood. Coming in at number three, we have the Cluster B Society by Christopher R. Rufo. Interesting term. We'll figure out what that means if you don't know it already. The Cluster B, as in boy, society. Coming in at number two, Zachary Groff writing Ministry Moves reported in 2023. It's an article focused on uh, PCA Minister Moves. And uh, coming in at number one last week, we have Aaron Verizman. It doesn't work. Presbyterian Church USA. So we'll start here with the number one article. Compromises on sexuality, Aaron Vreisman writes, are connected to general erosion of biblical fidelity. It doesn't work. So Dominic and I have talked a lot about this, um, Ryan Beasy, essentially looking at these other denominations, the main lines, but specifically, you know, obviously Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, as, as somewhat of a foreshadowing for churches, we've said many times was the PCA was going through the last five, six years wrestling over the side B situation, the what's now known as revoice theology that is uh, being rejected, you know, as we speak, continue to be rejected by the PCA, that uh, when you go side B, any church that goes side B, if you will, eventually goes side A and just fully embraces homosexuality. This seems to be the case with all kinds of uh you know, uh, uh, I guess doctrinal issues, orthodox issues, and, you know, people that are becoming more liberal. You know, we obviously we can see this if you go read Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, and, and uh, he makes great arguments there. 
and so, you know, here we have an article um, essentially saying that LGBTQ ideology has divided one church after another. Episcopal Church USA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, Mennonite Church USA, United Methodist Church, Church of the Brethren, Reformed Church in America. And uh, we have a, a series coming up uh, by Aaron uh, Verizman. He's saying in this series, we will look at some of their stories. Each one shows how legitimizing alternative sexualities in the church is a mix of oil and water. It simply does not work. Another case in point, and this is the article they're highlighting, the Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church USA. Ryan, what were your thoughts on this number one article from last week? Well, as with most of the or many of the readers of the Aquila Report, the largest number, I was intrigued by this. It's it's uh, helpful to have data. Um, and the data certainly bears out that there is a, a correlation at the very least uh, with compromise on uh, biblical truth, particularly related to sexual ethics, but in wider areas and a numerical uh, decline. Now, we do want to be careful and not, you know, uh, assert that simply because a church is declining in numbers, uh, that therefore she must be unfaithful. However, we also, whenever there's a decline in numbers, a decline, whether that's people in the pews, uh, in a decline in giving, whenever there's a, a decline, a withdrawal of blessings, if you will, in the church, we should need to ask why. Uh, is God chastising us for something? Uh, is this, or, or not, right? Not necessarily, but not necessarily is that the case, but we do need to ask those questions. And, you know, the article traces the decline and death of biblical ethics in the PCUSA from one congregation affirming and legitimizing sodomy within the church, I think it was in 1984, uh, to an attempt to require fidelity and chastity in 1986. And it was interesting, the article talked about how the sodomites and their allies in the PCUSA decried that effort as spiritual abuse. But the theological de decline uh, continued. Uh, in 2010, they had the pagan-themed worship service, trying to be relevant. And in 2010, they also managed to remove that fidelity and chastity clause from ministerial requirements. And so the more a church tries to be like the world, the more the church tries to be relevant, the less relevant she actually is. The numbers are, are quite stark, aren't they, Paul? Yeah, they really are. Uh, and this article, I, I really like it because it, um, like you said at the beginning, the outset, it gives us data, and you really just can't argue with this. Um, but I've never seen somebody kind of go through the, <laughs> the, you know, from the 80s, you know, to the 90s to 2010, and just showing just how really, I mean, they're literally the definition of double-minded, I mean, mm. in, in a way, and being tossed, you know, from wave to wave, if you will. Uh, I mean, this is this is just what it what it looks like, uh, you know, given uh, giving being basically given over, mm. uh, you know, to um, to what you want, not what God wants. And so uh, I think this is um, certainly a warning to anybody. And I guess it would just say, I mean, we know, I think the theological bent of Aquila Report readers, I think this is a warning that, you know, if your denomination is just dealing with any kind of, you know, theological liberalism or uh, basically just call people questioning the inerrancy of scripture, people trying to, you know, get workarounds, people see the Bible as, you know, some sort of uh, barrier instead of a protection and what God would have for our life. It really should be encouraging to us to keep, to keep working, to keep uh, pursuing, um, 
and protecting the 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 bride of Christ. And uh, that that's kind of what I take from this. Yes, yes. The uh, the author concludes the PCUSA is a story of how legitimizing same sex marriage and drifting from biblical orthodoxy invariably go hand in hand. It's not that Christians are obsessed with sex or picking on one sin. Compromises on sexuality, he says, are connected to general erosion of biblical fidelity. It doesn't work. Very good. So number two from last week, uh, Zachary Groff, Ministry Moves Reported in 2023. I think this is going to be more up your alley, uh, teaching (laughs) Elder Ryan Beasy, the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, reports annually on statistical changes that take place each year, including ministerial and congregational departures from the denomination. Now, (laughs) I mean, this makes the number two on the list. You would have thought maybe this would have made like number nine or number 10, but no, number two. So our uh, our readers this week love statistics, apparently. Yes, they do. Uh, Anyway, so take it away on this one. I, you know, anything stand out to you in the ministerial moves reported in 2023? Well, Zach Groff is always helpful. Uh, the PCA Polity site is is a great resource. He says, while congregations will be evenly split in their destination denominations, the number of ministers departing will be concentrated in, uh, denomin- in, in denominations that are described here as subjectively more peaceful. So he says the congregations are going about, you know, it's hard to say uh, whether they're more going uh, to progressive or conservative. They're going about evenly split, but ministers who are leaving the PCA are going to the EPC, uh, the ECHO, ECHO, uh, and the uh, Anglicans. Uh, so uh, you can't really make much of a conclusion about where the congregation's leaving going, but as to ministers, uh, they are definitely leaving to go to broader communions. I know there were a number of congregations in the Pacific Northwest that left uh, for the Anglican Church of North America, and the pastors were, I was told, uh, progressive. But then a year or two later, uh, their bishop comes in and replaces the pastors. And, and of course, there's no recourse because they're Anglican. And so I suspect we'll see <laughs> uh, fewer PCA churches leaving uh, for the Anglican communion in, in uh, recent years as a result of that lesson. But we do have a number of Anglican-attracted ministers and congregations in the PCA. You know, folks, they want to worship in a darkened room with candles and such. Uh, you've had your own experience with that sort of thing in Jonesboro, as I recall. Uh, but I think this is a sign of health uh, for the PCA uh, that that we are we are leaking left, uh, but we're not splitting right. Uh, so that's good. Interesting. I, it's, it's an interesting term, leaking left but not splitting right. Uh, just real quick, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I mean, do you think some of this has anything to do with the stands? The, the PCA uh, has taken, I mentioned Revoice Theology, but against Revoice Theology over the last five years. I mean, it's been slow. It's not been as fast as I wanted it to be uh, watching it. But, I mean, I think it's clear to me, you know, the uh, overture after overture after overture, you know, even if you don't get the two-thirds of the 88 presbyteries, we're still coming back. You know, we're getting another bite at the apple every single year until mm. we get it right. Do you think that uh, constantly bringing up this issue, which is a is a, a, a which is a good hill to die on. Do you think yeah. that has kind of pushed some ministers being like, you know what, I see the direction here, I disagree with it, so I'm jumping ship, I'm going somewhere else. I I do wonder if it's guys seeing the direction, seeing the writing on the wall, or guys who are just tired of uh, fighting over it, and uh, you know they have these uh, sympathies with revoice with uh, 
uh, uh, side B, and uh, so they're going to go somewhere where they can get a little bit of space. Now, uh, that being said, I don't think the EPC or the uh, the Anglicans uh, – in fact, the EPC in many ways is is stronger, at least until um, we – if we ratify uh, some of the uh, BCO changes next year. But for right now, I think the EPC is stronger on sexuality and chastity than the PCA is, at least by its culture. Uh, we seem to have – uh, more latitude in that area, but we'll see what happens uh, with the presbyteries uh, on on that item in particular. And of course, a strong uh, SJC ruling uh, with uh, related to the Missouri Presbytery uh, certainly helped uh, show that there's a uh, there's a willingness to deal uh, with uh, and, and hold accountable that there was not in in recent years. Right. Right. Uh, and that's very, very good. Very, very thankful for that. Um, mm-hmm. Number three, number three from last week. Is that right? We're on number three. That's correct. Okay. So the Cluster B Society. So we're saying the letter B as in boy here. This is by Christopher R. Rufo. We must learn how to counter emotional falsification and how to say no with a renewed voice of authority. We must find a way to restore balance, order, discipline, sanity. Boy, isn't that uh, an understatement, honestly. Um, so he, he cites, uh, you know, here's kind of the, um, you know, society's just totally upside down. Black is white, you know, in that famous Ghostbusters 2, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Uh, a recent CIA recruitment video valorized what's called the cluster B traits of narcissistic identity obsession, self-righteousness and craving for affirmation. Uh, so, again, this is a CIA recruitment video. OK, quote, I am a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Now, you would think, Ryan, that this would not be the type of person that the CIA wants. Uh, this is a, this is a, a quote from the, this uh, recruitment video that intones the featured CIA analyst as the camera pans over her diversity awards. Uh, Quote, I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. First of all, if you had if you wanted to know the psychological makeup of the type of people that are if they get their way, will put Christians in camps. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is a good uh, it's a good summary here in a cluster B society. Psychological disorders are job qualifications rather than problems to be solved. Ideology replaces competence as a marker of distinction. So uh, this article is, again, highlighting uh, essentially this cluster B society, which is this idea, uh, from what I can tell, looking at uh, Christopher you know, Rufo's writings here, it's psychological dysfunction that is now accepted and embedded into our institutions. Uh, what were your thoughts on this article, Ryan Beasley? Well, the pendulum certainly has uh, swung. A generation ago, people with psychological dysfunctions were um, locked up in um, mental institutions, which in many ways were not uh, were not helpful for them, uh, were not um, conducive to their care. It was just to get them out of society. Uh, well, now uh, we're in a situation where people are encouraged to be their authentic selves, uh, to self-medicate and to uh, – revel in these psychological dysfunctions rather than encouraging someone to continue to be anxious 
they, they should be encouraging them, uh, such people, uh, to to find peace. And of course, uh, peace is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but yes, we are in a society where uh, dysfunction, disability are um, not just uh, uh, accepted, uh, but uh, celebrated and sought. Where you even have people pretending to have these uh, disorders and 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 so forth. So, and how do you tell someone you know that you don't have a dysfunction? How do you prove that to them if the way you get a job promotion or the way you get an award or the way you get ahead in society is to invent some dysfunction? It becomes a social contagion, as we've discussed or as y'all have discussed on this podcast at other times. You know, and we've talked about, you know, and you see this in the secular world a lot uh, that, you know, people uh, are, are pushing back against uh, the trans, the transient of kids. Um, genital mutilation, puberty blocking hormones, that sort of thing, and they're calling it a mental disorder. Mm. I think this is good pairing with that. You know, looking at the psychological profile, I mean, the CIA is re- trying to recruit individuals that are essentially nuts. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, and and it's this central intelligence agency. Yeah, and, and I, I want go ahead. Well, I wonder how much of that is because uh, the people in upper management know that those with psychological disorders can be easily manipulated or controlled. Yes. Um, I, I don't know, uh, but it does seem uh, counterintuitive if you're trying to build a strong organization that you would want people who are uh, celebrating uh, narcissist, borderline, uh, histronic, antisocial behavior. Yeah, well, and you know that coupled with the facts that you know our intelligence agencies increasingly appear to be weaponized against the very public that they're supposed mm. to serve like right here in, in America whether it's the FBI or the CIA and there's ample evidence of that and uh certainly anti-christian our government is becoming more and more anti-christian hostile towards christianity we we've talked about the negative world and you'll have to I can't remember the um, author who coined, you know, those. Uh, Aaron Wren. Yeah, Aaron Wren. Love it. I love it. I'm using it all the time now, just explaining to people, hey, look, we used to be, you know, positive world, and then we were neutral, you know. Christianity is not a threat, also not a good thing, and now we're a threat. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so this is uh, this is an interesting world that we're living in. Um, but this, this is a great article. You know, it, we talk about a lot of times um, – articles that you would share in a small group and this might not be one that you would think but this it it certainly would get people really thinking about uh the intricacies of how depravity is working you know from institution to institution and i think that's important because it can kind of give us a direction uh of where we're going and, and how to prepare for it um in a cluster B society, psychological disorders are now job qualifications. Now, think about that. And not just job qualifications at some woke corporate office. They're now job qualifications for people that are supposed to be handling our national security. Uh, you know, so anyway. <laughs> I think they made a movie about that. Wasn't it called um, Dr. Strangelove? Uh, you know what? It, I don't know. You'll have to you'll have to tell me. I've never seen Dr. Strangelove. It's a, it's uh it's uh well, you'll, you'll just have to go and, and watch go it. it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I, t- yeah, take your word for it. Um, sorry for my, uh, uh, what would you call that? Cultural ignorance, uh, on that <laughs> one. Um, all right. So that's number three, number four, uh, not Augustinian enough. This is a book review by James Wood book review. Uh, it is a book about the whole Bible sheds light on 
the whole life, how we can read and understand our society, our culture, and ourselves through the lens of the Bible storyline. So once again, the top 10 list kind of forming a theme here, people analyzing the culture and, uh, you know, trying to, ha- how do we understand that in light of biblical truth? Uh, would, what would, so the idea is, what would Augustine write to the late modern West? Uh, Christopher Watkin, in, a, in his widely lauded biblical critical theory, seeks to answer that question by performing a similar type of social analysis for a very different context. Okay, so the title of the article is not Augustinian enough. The book he's reviewing is Biblical Critical Theory by a guy named Christopher Watkin. Uh, so, BZ, you may know more about this than I do, but uh, again, it's a, it's a charitable uh, book review, but he's saying eh, maybe this isn't Augustinian enough. What were your thoughts on this? <laughs> yes, the, the book is written as a so what. Uh, Watkin explains the title of the book could have easily have been the Bible. So what? Uh, I, I knew that uh, James Wood wasn't going to be positive when he said that this book has many strengths, starting first with the style <laughs> and structure. <laughs> so I, I guess you know the, the table of contents and the font uh, that was a, that was one of its strengths. This is a good source book, he says, uh, from some of the best Christian commentators on late modern culture. Uh, he adds, uh, Watkin is actually quite impressive on uh, particular issues, uh, but he's trying to proffer a middle way. Uh, Watkin quickly explains that Chris, Christ's ministry cannot be simply defined in categories of Marxist or critical theory. Jesus also reaches out to those whom Jacques Ellul describes as the uninteresting poor, who are not related to fashionable social causes. But then he starts into his criticism Though the book has many strengths, it has numerous shortcomings as well. We can begin with style. So he well, he gives with one hand, he takes away uh, with the other, I suppose. The book is simply too long. <laughs> There's too much material in it, sounding like an undergraduate. Uh, when Watkin does talk about pressing political issues of our day, sometimes he can oversimplify things, rushing to a naive and vacuous third-wayism. So he's seemingly trying to channel uh, Tim Keller whom uh, James Wood has been uh, critical uh, previously. So he has this uh, chilling rebuke. He says, the book is insufficiently Augustinian. This would not be such an issue if if the work weren't presented in the endorsement as an update of Augustine's City of God, and if the author did not himself frequently refer to that great text as inspiration. The Augustinian deficiencies are evident in a few areas. Uh, Watkin is very good at explaining the Christian character of late modern Western society and even critiquing their Christianity, but his reflection on and response to the anti-Christian nature of these societies is a bit lacking. Availing himself more of Augustine uh, would have helped, he says. So uh, kind of uh, he he, uh, set his uh, goal uh, too high and he wrote too much, uh, but uh, still he likes the way it's laid out. Yeah, so uh, it, it just ends with uh, him saying Watkin has written a fascinating uh, tome. Is, how do you, is that tomey? Tome, yeah. Tome. It's a, a nice way of saying a very long book, isn't it? <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, he has uh, honored Keller's request for a Christian high theory, and it is a gift that Keller saw its fruition before departing to glory, though I do not believe this book will 
see a legacy similar to that of the city of God. No work should be burdened with this pressure. Uh, It speaks in profound ways to our moment. It would be great uh, for the types of classrooms mentioned above and will uh, will be helpful on the shelves of many pastors providing signals for further research. I'm grateful Watkin pushed me to read my Bible more closely and appreciate its comprehensive relevance for late modern life in fresh ways. That is a success. All right, so that was number four. Number five from last week, we have the secular son of progressive Christianity. Uh, so this is uh, Ibram X. Ibram X. Kendi's worldview is a natural outgrowth of an unbiblical theology. John uh, Schweiker, writing, when Christianity is reduced to a social program, God is left to an afterthought. And when God is an afterthought, it's no surprise that faith in God would be abandoned when belief in God becomes inconvenient. Why tithe to your church when you could give to the ACLU? Why sit through a Sunday sermon when you already participated in anti-racism training at work? Wow, that's, you know, the it's the virtue signaling, this phony altruism. I've made this argument for for years. I mean, you know, going back to even when it was maybe more basic argument, going back to like my first years in talk radio, uh, you know, over a decade ago where, you know, you had this idea of this, uh, I don't know, ever expanding welfare state. And it's like, well, why should I help the poor? Why should I love my neighbor? I've had the taxes confiscated from me that are going to programs to do that. Right. So I have more confidence in stepping over a homeless person than helping them because, you know, we've, I've already, I've already, uh, you know, uh, I've already contributed to this, this forced charity, if you will. Uh, this is a little bit more comp- complicated or a uh, little bit, just I would say a better comparison than than what I just said and what I used to say frequently. Um, but this is uh, Ibram X. Kendi, today's most prominent advocate for critical race theory. He's under investigation now for the potential mismanagement of tens of millions of donors' dollars, perhaps more interestingly, uh, for readers of World, Kendi is also the secularized son of progressive Christianity. While the legacy media is understandably focused on the mass layoffs, financial issues, and criticisms of employment violence being leveled at the Center for Anti-Racist Research that Kendi founded at Boston University, it's worth taking a step back to reckon more broadly with the social trends that formed Ibram Kendi into a social justice warrior in the first place. As John McWhorter explains in Woke Racism, critical race theory is a religion in all but name, which helps explain why some so destructive and incoherent is so attractive to so many people, so many good people. What McWhorter misses, however, is that this new religion emerged in large part out of a progressive stream of Christianity that no longer had a convenient place for God in its worldview. Ryan Beasy. What were your thoughts on uh, this number five article from last week? Well, the scandal shouldn't be surprising given the company he's kept. The uh, It's become increasingly clear that the Black Lives Matter movement was simply a way for the early – it was a pyramid scheme for the early folks uh, to get uh, very wealthy. And there are people who have been trying to imitate uh, that get-rich-quick uh, scheme uh, for, for uh, quite some time. Although his breakout book, How to Be Anti-Racist, he says, I cannot disconnect my parents' religious strivings to be Christian from my secular strivings to be anti-racist. 
And so I think I've, I've heard PCA elders recommending uh, that book uh, not that long ago, at least, which indicates how far the cult of critical race theory has uh, inf- infected the PCA. Uh, so he anticipates a Christianless society, even if he uh, remembers going to church with his parents, it sounds like. He says, uh, the author says, if Christ is risen, uh, then it changes everything, including how we think about race. Uh, Kendi complains in Stamped from the Beginning that a truly multicultural nation would not have Christianity as its unofficial standard religion. But the truth is, says John Schweiker, God is making us into a multicultural people in Christ, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and all languages, standing before the Lamb and the throne. So you have this competing vision of of the so-called anti-racists uh, versus uh, the what uh, what we read at the end of the book, don't we? Yeah, a- absolutely, we do. Um, yeah, in spite of all the racism that Kendi and Skinner before him can chronicle, that great multitude clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands will worship God together in eternity. The Lord, not the ACL, ACLU, will bind us together in this way. This is the Christian hope, and it explains all the difference between Orthodox Christianity and the anti-racism religion that emerged out of it. Uh, from the multicultural Christian heights of the civil rights movement to the divisive identity politics of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, you know, it really is a, a good article uh, highlighting just the pitfalls of where all of these, um, you know, we're just obsessed with race right now. Honestly, it's just uh, it's everywhere. Um, it's uh, it's just constantly used to. Uh, to divide us and uh, to create different grievance classes. And, you know, you wonder at the end of the day, there's going to be so many different uh, classes of people that are grieved uh, or have some grievance. Is it just going to be eventually one person pointing their fingers at the rest of society? And again, it kind of already is. If you can go back to the cluster B society we just talked about, uh, that that tends to be, uh, you know, what's going on. So uh, that was number five. Um and uh, now we move on to number six. Taylor Swift's popularity <laughs> is a sign of societal decline. Mark Hemingway writing this piece. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I, this is one of those. I'm like, why? I'm just kind of sick of uh, the whole Taylor Swift uh, uh, obsession right now. It seems to be on in all the headlines and uh, I'm kind of I'm done with it. But here's an article. This this is the, the reader saying, look, uh, it, it is, uh, you know, it is a, it's it is pretty much dangerous, and we have kind of a deconstruction of of why Taylor Swift um, is uh, and all of this worship of her is is a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it was recently announced this in the article that she struck a deal with AMC Theaters to show a three hour concert film for her from her smash tour for the millions of people who couldn't get tickets. So she just finished this big. Uh, this big uh, tour where she allegedly, you know, the stadiums were so packed, allegedly there were earthquakes because of uh, the people there. Um, the New Yorker recently issued its high toned blessing by publishing a remarkable essay listening to Taylor Swift in prison. Her music makes me feel that I'm still a part of the world I left behind. Uh, there was a time when we imagined that everyone in prison yard would stand around overwhelmed by the sheer emotion and elevation of the soul produced uh, soul produced by by hearing uh, uh, Solaria from Mozart, uh, even though they had no idea what those two Italian ladies were singing about. But if blank space is what you've got on the cheap commissary radio to help you count the days, I'm not going to begrudge you 
Ryan BC, what were your thoughts on this article? What they're calling it the rise of the me music again, mm. back with narcissism and, and essentially, you know, personality disorders. Our music even promotes narcissism now. Well, I hate pop culture. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, culture snob, and uh, but nonetheless, so, so I did, I did very much appreciate uh, this article. Yes, uh, sh- uh, the author says it's, it's utterly defined by self-obsession rather than introspection. Where other artists will occasionally do a Christmas album, it seems like every Taylor Swift album is a festivist record devoted to the airing of grievances and feats of artistic strength. And so he continues. Well, I don't doubt that she has talent as a songwriter, Hemingway says. Her songs are a corporate product, both in the sense that they are almost always co-created by a team of songwriters with a track record of hits and in how they are marketed, which is to say that Taylor Swift excels at writing popular songs. But that's not the same thing as writing good songs. It is uh, anti-Christian. right? Christianity cultivates beauty, uh, but Taylor Swift is anti-beauty. Taylor Swift's music occupies a very, very specific range in terms of the breadth of human condition that she is speaking to. Perhaps it's the broadest and most appealing, but it's the shallowest, and that's something. A big part of the problem with uh, Swift is she is very good at serving an audience that has been conditioned to accept less in terms of musical and lyrical sophistication. And that's you know, what we see in our society. People are trained to accept mediocre and so they uh, they accept Swift as expressing their own inmost feelings, but their own inmost feelings are very shallow. And you have this kitschy um, uh, substitute for art, and it fits. You know, we get the artists we deserve, don't we? Uh, yeah, you you are exactly right. We do get the artists we deserve. And you know, what's interesting is when you just look at any of these artists but i mean let's take taylor swift who's really popular right now and is currently being used uh just in terms of you know she's partnering with this nfl guy now and they're you know they're selling pfizer vaccines and partnering with the democrat party to try to get out the vote uh even before 2024 uh maybe you guys don't know that but that's exactly what this is this is trying to leverage her massive fan base uh to to actually you know turn them into a political arm um because there's a lot of uh, people in the middle or even on the right that go to Taylor Swift concerts. But everybody was outraged six, seven months ago uh, at the Grammys when you had that uh, that that one uh, uh, man, I guess, dressed up as Satan in the cage. You remember all that, that hellscape that they put on TV? I mean, you know, go look at some of these Taylor Swift music videos. You see the same type of inner imagery. You, you, know, you know, you mentioned it's not Christian. It's you know, it's satanic. I mean. Uh, in many respects, if you go look at what these people actually put uh, to the, the the visuals that they put to their music and their music videos and that sort of thing. And that's why I'm like you, Ryan. I mean, that's one of the reasons I kind of hate pop culture as well is because I, you know, just I don't want to dwell on it. It's just so it's just so infuriating. You know what I mean? That uh, people uh, just seem to gravitate towards what is just so obvious to me. I, I know people can be blind, but it's just so obvious to me that it's uh, it's, e- it's just evil, you know, and I, mm. I, I need to, I want to make those, I want to make t-shirts that say those 1950s rock and roll moms were right because they <laughs> were, I'd wear that proudly. Yeah. Well, you know what I always say, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> uh, here is, okay. So this is, uh, what was that? Was that number? How don't, how does Dominic do this? How does he keep track? We're, of I think we're on number seven now. Okay. So now it's number seven. Here we go. Uh, this, uh, from, um, Heather McDonald, but Johnny 
can't spell gay. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you click the uh, the link on the Aquila Report, uh, you can uh, go to it, it. It hyperlinks to a place called City Journal, and it's got this teacher holding up a rainbow flag uh, to a room full of students. But Johnny can't spell gay with large majorities of their students incompetent in English and math. Los Angeles schools are ramping up efforts for more gay pride and gender indoctrination. This is you talk about the religion of BLM or the religion of, uh, you know, uh, anti-racism. It goes hand in hand with this Mm. uh, this corrupt sex religion that they've also created for themselves uh, that they're now forcing on everybody else. Um, She writes, it has been almost 90 days since gay pride month, according to the Los Angeles Unified School District, that that is too long a hiatus from the imperative of immersing young children in the uh, basically uh, arcana arcana of gay and trans identity. So throughout the week of October 9th, many elementary school classrooms in Los Angeles will celebrate National Coming Out Day, which falls on October 11th. So October is apparently LGBTQ plus history month, Ryan. And uh, this made the headlines. Obviously, uh, last week I saw there was a legislator, a state legislator in the Dakotas somewhere that said, fine, if you want to teach LGBTQ history, you have to teach about Sodom and Gomorrah, (laughs) Uh, which I thought was was apropos. And uh, of course, it was extremely controversial and uh, and everybody uh, thinks it's a terrible idea. But I mean, it would be good to teach about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, to our to our kids, I think uh, any any Bible story at this point in school would be a good one. Um, so yeah, this is uh, uh, another example of the indoctrination. Now, why this is happening, in my opinion, is not only because the and this may maybe shock some of you out there. I don't know, but they're wanting to normalize pedophilia. They actually want to make it legal, uh, and this is part. This, in my opinion, goes hand in, in foot with. There's this obsession with the sexuality of kids. Kids are not sexual. okay? they're asexual. And yet we are having this obsession because psychologically, back to the the previous articles, uh, these grownups are so perverted. They see, just like much of our society, wants to identify everything in some sort of sexual category. So everything is about sex. Your identity is is is, you know, if you took away sex, it would be a, a nightmare for people. They wouldn't know how to cope. They wouldn't know who they are, what their identity was if it wasn't for sex. And so look at a child who doesn't know anything about sex naturally is not a sexual being. And they they don't know how to comprehend that because they see everything through the lens of sex. And so their goal is to is to basically indoctrinate them, is to groom them, is to you know, the goal is to make them uh, essentially uh, subscribers of their sex religion so they can grow up and be perverted just like them. And it's a, it's a serious thing because we're putting kids with taxpayer dollars, putting them on a path to hell. There's also the demographic uh, problem here, Ryan, which is that uh, if you subscribe to this type of lifestyle, specifically if you give yourself puberty blocking hormones or chemically castrate yourself or go through the actual surgery, you're not likely to have children of your own. So we have people who are subscribing to this dogma, this sex religion, and they don't actually have a means of reproducing uh, the natural way uh, to where you would then bring your kids up as a pagan. Okay, so they have to try to paganize the kids of normal people. uh, And that's why they're obsessed with taking over education. 
Well, uh, Paul, I think you've you've skipped over something, and it connects to one of the previous articles. The uh, sexual uh, uh, abuse often leads to psychological dysfunction, and when children are exposed to all sorts of what we would what an objective person would see as grooming, it has psychological impacts on them. And so I wonder if that is part of the reason for uh, the the prevalence of, of these clusters of, of side B, uh, the side B clusters growing in prevalency in society because people have been abused, even if not physically, but nonetheless exposed to things by their educators that they should not have been exposed to because the priority of the government school system is not producing well-educated uh, citizens. Now, the article talks about in 2022, 61% of third graders in the Los Angeles school district uh, were not not uh, on grade level for English, and uh, 59% of third graders were not on grade level for math. And of course, it's a whole lot easier for a teacher to paint her hair blue and act out her fantasies on grammar school children than to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, as we used to say. Um, you know, a century ago, Jay Gresham Machen warned us about the government schools. Uh, Machen says this, when one considers what the public schools of America in many places already are, so 100 years ago, their materialism, their discouragement of any sustained intellectual effort, their encouragement of the dangerous pseudoscientific fads of experimental psychology, one can only be appalled by the thought of a commonwealth in which there is no escape from such a, a soul-killing system. And Paul, that was 100 years ago when Machen foresaw what the public schools would become because he, he was seeing the seeds in his own days. And so the author, Heather McDonald, concludes – uh, Los Angeles's kindergartners know nothing about sex, much less about its recent artificial mutations, other than what the activists are cramming down their throats. If this is not grooming, it is hard to know what is. And so, Paul, now I'm going to say something controversial. And so if our if our listeners disagree with me, please, you know, don't get mad. Write an editorial to the Aquila Report telling me why I'm wrong. But here it is. I'm going to say it. Get your kids out of the government schools. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything controversial with that. Um, I mean, I, I want to be, you know, preface that with being charitable for those that haven't haven't done that or disagree with that statement. But, yeah, I mean, um, you know, there there may still be pockets where it, it's OK. You know, it's not this stuff is not going on. But I mean, it, it, you know, we we homeschool because we came, I came to the college, me, and my wife, who was a teacher before we yeah. had our daughter. Um I just came to the conclusion that it's a net negative. Like even if you have the best teacher in the world, the uh, the bureaucratic structure around it by itself, it it it, it you know it lends itself to uh, to just being a net negative. It's not a net positive, you know, in my opinion. And then yeah. and that was before. I mean, things in the last six years, things have gotten even worse. Yeah. You know, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Um, yeah, so you know that was controversial, but you know, write an editorial for the Aquila Report well, there you go. And, and tell me why I'm wrong, please. There you please. go. You know, I, you know, my, I, I'm going to my grandfather's funeral in a, in a few days. He was Sorry a, a, about a, that. Well, um, thank you. Uh, he was an, a government school educator for 40 years. Now, I, I would love uh, to 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 hear reasons why Christians should continue to be in in the government schools. Uh, so you know, but where they are now, and you know, here in Catoosa County, Georgia. We couldn't even do that, and this is this is this is <laughs> Taylor Green's district. But why? Yeah, please, you know, don't just get angry. 
articulate an argument why Christians should continue to trust the education of their children to the government. Please, I would love, I would love to read it and interact with it. Well, I mean, you know, this is where it just gets tough and you're going to confront, you know, you get confronted with this idea of like if you can establish the schools as a net negative or even an enemy, which at this point, I mean, come on, teaching your kids about sex. I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's the enemy. Why are you going to let the enemy educate your children? I mean, that's Precisely. what you have to confront with that. And uh, and then you, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, you also <laughs> have to confront the the economy that we have today is just not it's just not as biblical as it once was in terms of, you know, everybody. A lot of people have to have two incomes to survive or a lot of people think they have to have two incomes to survive. Um, that's another problem that people are wrestling with, um, especially you know, with, with inflation being what it yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times it's easy to just say, hey, you know, we're going to let the schools be, you know, government yeah. babysitters. So we so we get the two incomes. And that's and it's just that's what it's kind of. You know, it is what it is. There's a lot of a uh, lot of things that have led us to this point. But, you know, their homeschooling is exploding right now. Um, also, private Christian schooling is exploding as well because there's uh, just people. COVID exposed a lot. I think mm. COVID exposed a lot of wasted time uh, when it when it came from the remote learning and that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, yes, I it's a controversial statement, but I'm glad you said it. BZ, I am. I may not be invited back next week. Not at all. Not at all. Well, I don't think, I mean, are I you here next week? So no, I'm people not. I'm don't just... think that we, he's not scheduled to be <laughs> here next he, week. Beasy has been canceled for next You're week. Not canceled. Calling it now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, number eight, we have the great schism of 1054. I know you guys all learned about this in our government schools. The great schism of 1054 by Stephen Nichols. Right, Beasy. I'm just going to get handed to you. What was the great schism of 1054? It was the the split between the uh, Eastern and Western uh, churches over uh, the filioque, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or the Father and the Son. And uh, uh, Nichols gives several lessons at the end. He gives a, a good, uh, quick overview of the history, which our our readers can of course, uh, read for themselves. But he says one of the lessons learned from the schism concerns power, politics, and control, and how not a single one of those are good for the church. Uh, he, he reminds us that while there may have been something on the surface, uh, what lies beneath uh, should be of concern. Um, uh, he, he said that we should learn from Eastern theology that it emphasizes mystery and beauty, Two things at which Westerners do not excel, and we've already talked about that uh, a little bit today. We like to have things figured out and resolved. We're not always content to leave something unresolved. And he says there's still nonetheless a need for Christian unity. Even in the throes of the splits, however, we need to remember there is unity uh, to the one true church, and that unity comes only as a result of the gospel. And that's, uh, of course, uh, going back to, to Machen. People wanted unity, but without truth. Unity must be founded upon truth, just as godliness is founded upon truth. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you do have to, in fighting for for, for truth, you end up uh, you end up sacrificing uh, the peace for the purity, mm. or for a time, anyway. Um, so that is number eight. Um, as Dominic says, we commit that to you. Number nine, we have. Uh, when genuine obedience becomes impossible, hell uh, hell becomes impossible as well. This is a very good article by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, it's extremely challenging um, mm. because I, 
you know, I think maybe we've all been there where we say, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm just not an, I'm not an obedient Christian, you know, and who can obey? I'm just, I'm, I'm so sinful. Um, you know, what, what's the point? And he warns about that mentality and, and says, well, when you get to that point, it can be dangerous because you won't heed the warnings of scripture that, you know, call you to repentance, you know, if you are, um, you know, engaging in, in habitual sin, really. So uh, he writes, uh, good works versus obedience. There's really important, but si- there's a really important but simple distinction we need to make in thinking about our good works or our obedience. And that is that our good works can be truly good, even though they're not perfectly good. They're never without some imperfections. They're always tinged with some kind of selfishness. Uh, and then he, he's skipping down here. It's 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 not an excuse to sin. Um, uh, but it's to say, yeah, there are layers to the onion of the human heart. So there's always that presence of indwelling sin. It's imperfect. And yet the best theologians have said that it can be true, that can be truly obedient. I think that's a new concept for some people, though it shouldn't be, because Paul often praises the churches for their obedience. Mm. Jesus in the Great Commission said, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And there's no escape hatch that says, oh, by the way, of course, you can't really be obedient (laughs) to anything. So we must have a category of Jesus that doesn't mean you'll never be tempted or you'll never uh, you'll never have uh, imperfect motives, but you can live a life of ordinary faithful obedience. One of the problems when we don't have that category is we think this, and this is what I was talking about at the beginning. You know what? I never really obey. Everything in my life is just polluted, sinful, filthy rags. That is when we need, when we say that to ourselves, Kevin Young is writing, that is when we need to hear the alarm bells going off. We don't hear it like we should. Uh, BZ, what did you think of this? This was a great article. Uh, I think it was based on a an address he gave at the Spring Conference for the Gospel Reformation Network. But yeah, if if we're trained to say nobody's perfect, nobody obeys, then why um, that that infects our thinking to to lead to a sort of a view of sanctification that um, is entirely passive. What we need to know is that Christian, you can please God. All right, the calls to holiness in Scripture are real; that we should be seeing progressive sanctification, and, and that's of course the good form of progressivism. And we should be seeing sinful desires diminish. But we get in, into this rut of thinking, "Well, I'm so bad, I can't, I can't possibly do any good, so why even try?" That, that, that's not the point. Uh, that Christ's perfect righteousness, Christ's active obedience, uh, gives us incentive. Uh, to continue to obey and to strive uh, to obey. Uh, so uh, this is an important corrective to much of, of what's out there, even even sadly in the Presbyterian Church in America and, and, and uh, other Reformed communions. Yeah, he goes on. There are real serious warnings in Scripture where Paul will list off certain types of sins and say that if you are marked by these, you don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Idolaters, the sexual immoral, uh, the sexual immoral, they don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, well, if we're so trained to say, well, yeah, I'm guilty of that sin, that sin, that sin, and really every sin, then when uh, when we need to speak very strongly, either to others or ourselves, to rebuke and warning, then we figure, ah, nobody's perfect, nobody really obeys. Therefore, we don't feel the warning that we should feel. There's no way to understand the pastoral epistles 
unless you realize Paul has a category for Christians who are living a faithful, obedient life, and a category for those who are not repentant in whom there's no progress. Mm. So really, uh, I think helpful. This is this I think is uh, the real small group article of the yeah. uh, of the week. If you want to take that to your small group. All right. Lastly, number ten. Last week we have Joel uh, Beek. Definition of Puritanism. So this is an article that has to do with uh, the Puritans and what you know how they lived, what they thought, uh, what they embraced. Uh, so the Puritans embraced five major concerns and addressed each of them substantially in their writings. Uh, Ryan Beasy, um, what were your thoughts on this article about the Puritans? Well, I love Joel Beakey, and his his writings are profoundly uh, helpful. Uh, for the church, uh, he's clear. Uh, we're going through a, a family worship book that's written uh, by him and uh, Nick Thompson uh, right now on, on Genesis. So, anything Joel Beakey has written uh, almost uh, almost certainly will be helpful uh, to you. But yeah, we need to understand who the Puritans were and, and to remember that it's the Puritans who gave us the Westminster Confession of Faith. We mustn't have a uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, um, uh, uh, the Crucible. I forget. Was it? Is it Charles Miller? Who who wrote the Crucible? Paul, do you remember? Um, but it, one that, second, I'll find. <laughs> the interwebs will tell us. We, we mustn't get our our view of the Puritans from uh, literature generations later. And um, but the Puritans. Many people use the term Puritan today. Says Joel Beakey to describe a morose, legalistic brand of Christianity that borders on fanaticism. Much of this stereotype was the product of 19th century anti-Puritan sentiments. And isn't that the same thing that uh, Russell Moore said about John Bunyan, who was a Puritan as well, uh, that he was so morose? Uh, Others have described it as the fear that someone somewhere might possibly be happy. But Puritanism came uh, from a a descriptor of those who wanted to purify the Church of England. That's why there aren't Scottish Puritans or Dutch Puritans, because the Scottish – Kirk and the the Dutch Reformed Church was already a a Reformed Church, and so there was a a desire to see the Church of England become a truly Reformed uh, Church. And so throughout the 16th century, it was used often as a scornful adjective uh, rather than a substantive noun and was rejected as slanderous uh, in whatever quarter it was applied. But yes, the, the concerns of the Puritans were to search the scriptures, to exalt Trinitarian theology, uh, the, the Puritans loved the church, and they believed the church was purpose was centered in the purposes of Christ. Uh, the scripture uh, is to declare uh, the rights of kings and subjects, and then that uh, we must have a comprehensive conversion. There's no uh, presumption uh, that a person is a Christian. No, we, we must uh, call people to repent and believe, and so their their preaching was gospel-centered. Their application was gospel-centered. They modeled their they're preaching on the Apostle Paul, who even as he's making uh, very pointed and direct applications to the church, is always grounded in what the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has done. So the Google machine says it's Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, yes. I, I knew it wasn't yeah. Samuel Miller. I knew it wasn't Charles Miller. <laughs> Arthur Miller, yes. American playwright. Um, I should have known that. But uh, yeah, I mean, the Puritans get a bad rap. Um, and by the way, I mean, the Crucible... <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I'm thinking maybe they really were witches. Who knows? Um, but Oliver Cromwell, uh, he, he's my favorite Puritan, actually. If you guys want, I don't know if you guys have seen it. There's a movie from the 70s. 
um, was it the sixties called with, Cromwell uh, with, with Alec Baldwin and or uh, Alec get Alec Guinness Alec Gillen yeah yeah I can't even, yeah yeah the Obi Wan Kenobi uh, so yes. Richard <laughs> Richard Harris plays Cromwell and uh, Alec Guinness plays King Charles the first it's one of my favorite movies nineteen seventy excellent movie and it, I good mean, choice I guess what I what was crazy about it is I had no idea about the English Civil War or very limited knowledge of it. It is something that we really need to uh, teach kids in school. I think one of the reasons we don't is because they chopped a king's head off and they don't <laughs> just me personally. I don't think they want kids to know that, uh, yeah, you can, you know, <laughs> you know, you can throw off authority uh, sometimes or at least it's happened in history. It's not something they really want to happen again, but there's and there's clear implications for what happened to King Charles versus why King George would not stand up for the uh, colonists, you know, um, basically 100 years later. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, many people believe the American Revolution was a continuation of of that, as with the war between the states is a continuation of the English uh, Civil War. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's lots of great lessons from uh, the English uh, Civil War in that Puritan era that even the government is subject uh, to – uh, the law, uh, the, that the law is king, not the king is king. That's but, right. Yes. Uh, so That's many right. benefits of, of Puritanism. Yeah, I just uh, I'll, I'll I'll never forget. You know, I knew about Oliver Cromwell because I remember reading about him in history. But I mean, it was one page at most. And it was like he was a mm. dictator. Turn the page. All right. Well, never <laughs> mind. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Britain's only dictator. And that's all you need to know. A dictator is a terrible word. And, uh, you know, <laughs> forget, okay. you know. And not, not to say that I agree with uh, Cromwell on, you know, on everything. Uh, I think he uh, didn't he send soldiers around uh, on Christmas to if they, they could smell goose cooking, he'd break up Christmas parties because, you know, that was still a contentious. It still is a contentious issue in some circles. But well, anyway, yeah, there's, there's some back and forth of this, whether that was Cromwell or his major generals. And he put a stop to that. But, of course, what he did ah. in, in Ireland was, of course, uh, reprehensible uh, and 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 not you know acceptable. Um Yes. So, yeah, he's he's a, a mixed figure, warts and all. Yes. I think that's actually where we get the phrase warts and all is from. Yeah. Cromwell. And we talked about this last week on the podcast, you know, this idea of like, why do why do people in history, you know, why do they they do good things and, and also really, really bad things? You know, and it's only in the gospel of Christ where you're able to reconcile those those things in, in that in that circle there. Um, Amen. Ryan, that's Beasy, a good word. I I really appreciate you you doing this these last two weeks, and uh, I, I'm a, I'm su- I'm sure it's not going to be the last time. And uh, I want to make sure everybody knows that you have your own <laughs> podcast uh, called uh, the Westminster Standard. Um, and I actually was a, a guest on it, or I will be a guest on it. Uh, it's not out yet, but um, I, I really appreciate you giving us your time. And oh, uh, thanks for having t- me. This can you tell fun. people where to find your podcast if they want to hear more of your insight? Uh, if you will go on to Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and just uh, type in the Westminster Standard uh, singular there, it, it should pop up. Uh, it's also available on YouTube, and we are at the WS Pod on uh, on Twitter. All right, Mr. Beasy, thank you so much. Really thank do you. appreciate you, folks. Thank you guys out there for listening. I hope you guys have a blessed week, and uh, we'll see you next week. Dominic should be back. Continue to pray for Dominic to get back to the States from Egypt.